0: 7, 2016. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Polk Runyon. And tonight we present a discussion on Ayn Rand's Magnum Opus Atlas Shrugged, 1957, from a Hermetic perspective. Now, this book has been read by almost as many people as the Bible. It is particularly important today because it predicted the deterioration of American industry and infrastructure under socialist government regulation. Rand's principal characters are heroic industrialists struggling to keep their enterprises going under worsening conditions until a genius inventor named John Galt convinces them all to quit and let the looters and the parasites of socialism try to run the country without them. Hence the title, Atlas, He Who Holds Up the World, Shrugged. Now whether you love it or hate it, the novel is powerfully written and the characters are dynamic. They resonate with frustrated achievers in today's America. Atlas Shrugged is hermetic in the same way that Freemasonry is hermetic. It is an elitism of the creative mind, the builders, the doers, the engineers, and the artists. We will examine this principle in hermetic philosophy and even compare Atlas Shrugged to Alistair Crowley's Diary of a Drug Fiend, 1922. And we will examine Ayn Rand's background in relation to the message of the novel. So if you find the world weighing down on you, and who doesn't these days... Tune in, and we'll just try to shrug it off. Now, I read Ayn Rand's 1943 novel, The Fountainhead, when I was still in my 20s. Like George Orwell's 1949 novel, 1984, The Fountainhead's message resonated with me and became part of my personal philosophy. I had just received my bachelor's degree and had escaped the confines of Marxist-dominated academia to enter the world of business. The fountainhead was the story of a talented architect, pride in his work, and he gave his design away to a competitor on the condition that it not be altered. And then he blew up the building when his masterpiece was trivialized. Now, this is, uh, this is a vast oversimplification of the plot, but it serves to point out the main theme, the exploitation of those who create by the human parasites and looters who feed on their creations, and the heroism of the creator who fights back. Now, this is the exact antithesis of Marxism which holds that the successful creators are exploiting the workers who produce their creations. Now, I personally side with Ayn Rand, but I must admit that in today's economic world, a measure of socialism is unfortunately necessary, and we should not exploit the less fortunate or even the less talented. Now, as a young woman, Ayn Rand grew up in Russia during the 1918 Revolution and Civil War. She witnessed the destruction of the Russian middle class and saw the lower classes starved and reduced to cannibalism. She fled to America and took up the American Dream. But her version of the Dream was still rooted in the 19th century before the rise of the unions and the antitrust legislation. Now in Atlas Shrugged, her heroes are reruns of the earlier robber barons of industry, who are curiously led to give up their empires by a Nikola Tesla-type inventor named John Galt, who, in the real world, they would have—now, this is my, this in my opinion is the fundamental flaw in the novel. But this is not a criticism of the book's value, regardless of how obsolete. Brown's economic hierarchy may be, the problems they face, the deterioration of our infrastructure, the decline of American industry, and the burdens of excessive regulation and taxation are all very real, especially today. Although the book was written before we entered the computer age, the issues it deals with are part of our everyday life. If we are to live and survive... The trains must run, the trucks must roll, the electrical grid must function, and the basics of food, water, and meaningful and productive employment must be provided. In our society, all these necessities are created, transported, and facilitated by the private sector, which the government is expected to aid and to coordinate. In Atlas Shrugged, the government's efforts to aid and coordinate degenerated into suppression and inefficiency. Now, with the exception of the mysterious John Galt and the metallurgist Hank Reardon, the rest of the major characters, Dagny Taggart, her brother Jim Taggart, and their friend Francisco Anconia, all grew up together as children. Dagny and Jim inherit the Taggart. Continental Railway Empire. Jim becomes the president, but his sister Dagny actually runs the railroad. Francisco inherits De Anconia Copper, the world's largest copper mining company based in South America, with holdings in the U.S. and Mexico. Now, Jim Taggart is a poor and indifferent chief executive. Taggart Continental is in trouble and deteriorating. Dagny, as the chief of operations, wants to replace their worn-out track with a new alloy called Reardon Metal from Hank Reardon's company, Reardon Steel. Hank Reardon is a self-made industrial giant with his own coal mines, foundries, and mills. He needs reliable rail transport, and he needs Dagny to help him improve the value of his new product, Reardon Metal. They make a deal, and they also start a relationship. Reardon is married to a socialite wife whom he despises. He supports a mother and a younger brother who despise him. He feels surrounded by parasites and attacked by government regulators who force him to give up his coal mine and attempt to declare his new ally unsafe for public use. Meanwhile, Francisco... Has leased a mountain in Mexico and opened a large scale copper mining operation, complete with a railroad from Taggart Continental. However, the San Sebastian Mexican copper mines are not producing. Dagny at Taggart Continental is pulling back her rolling stock and cutting her losses. Jim Taggart and the U.S. government don't like it. But to Dagny, business is business and San Sebastian is a loser. Her intuition is justified when the Mexican government nationalizes San Sebastian. They soon discover that the mines are worthless. Francisco has created a giant hoax, a multi-million dollar bad joke on everyone, including the Mexican government. Dagny is disgusted with him. What does What she does not realize is that Francisco... has secretly become a provocateur agent for the rebel John Galt. Francisco tries to recruit Dagny and Hank Reardon to join the John Galt cause, but they are both determined to fight on. Reardon's finest hour comes at his trial. Like Howard Roark in The Fountainhead, Reardon presents an effective defense, but this time it is in the form of a dialogue with a panel of government judges that goes on for about four pages. He dares them to charge and arrest him. Of course, they do, but then they quickly suspend the sentence. John Galt is the duke's ex machina of the novel. I'll explain that term. In medieval plays, when relationships and situations became too complicated, God himself descended to the stage, riding down on a pulley block to sort everything out, like King Solomon determining the mother of the baby. Ayn Rand sets this up in scenes throughout the book, wherein people recount their miseries from unemployment to poverty, always ending their soliloquy with the question, who is John Galt? So, who is John Galt? Well, he's an inventor, modeled on Nikola Tesla. Galt has invented a motor that operates on free energy. Tesla, his discovery, is too revolutionary for the marketplace. We'll recall that Tesla's wireless power system was rejected by financier J.P. Morgan, who growled at George Westinghouse, we can't have people milking our cow for free. However, in Galt's case, he finds a banker, Midas Mulligan, who will help him establish a hidden community in the Rockies, which they call Atlantis, where they will use the motor to power a Utopia, to which they will invite creative people from the outside world who are fed up with being regulated and exploited. The idea being that if they can... uh, The idea being that if they can get most of the movers and builders and doers to join them to go on strike, and the strike was the original title of the book, then the world outside will collapse. And after the apocalypse, they will reemerge and build society on a philosophy of enlightened self-interest rather than altruistic collectivism. Of course, all this happens on schedule. The economy collapses, and John Galt, takes over the airways for his speech to the American people, which Ayn Rand claims took her a year to write. It goes on for 60 pages, and it is mercifully cut down to two paragraphs in the movie version. The header for tonight's show reads, Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged from a Hermetic... And in the abstract, we stated... Atlas Shrugged is hermetic in the same way that Freemasonry is hermetic. It is an elitism of the creative mind, the builders, the doers, the engineers, and the artists. We will examine this principle in hermetic philosophy and even compare Atlas Shrugged to Alistair Crowley's Diary of a Dark Fiend, which was written in 1922. We will examine Ayn Rand's background in relation to the message of the novel. Of course... We have already pointed out that Ayn Rand grew up in Soviet Russia. Her objectivist philosophy is an exact opposite to Marxism. She is an absolute libertarian. Capitalism must not be restricted or regulated in any way. She seems oblivious to the rise of socialism in Western society. She wrote, Before the dawn of the computer age, the advent of robotics, globalism, or the Internet... And yet, as we mentioned, we still need the basics of industry to survive as a nation. So the message and the prophetic warning of Atlas Shrugged still resonates with us. Uh, let me elaborate on that a little bit. You know, uh, one of the reasons why we've, we've, uh, we've lost industry, especially in globalism, is because uh, you know the, the union movement, which was all very well and good in its time, but the problem was that that uh, uh overseas labor could you know, you could produce much much uh less expensively than than american union labor and uh and robotics of course were also replacing assembly line workers and and uh and uh so a lot of these things uh the technical uh, advances have caused a lot of this this sort of thing to happen uh however. Regardless of that, our industry is is in very very bad shape. And another reason, another thing that we don't, uh, that most of us don't realize is, is that during World War II, our industry won the war. I mean, you know, let's face it, our 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 aircraft and our tanks were nowhere near as good as what the Germans were producing, and and uh, but we but we we produced a lot more of them you know we just we just overwhelmed uh the, the the germans uh with uh with inferior with inferior tanks and 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 uh and second rate aircraft and and uh it, it, but uh when we and we destroyed other also we destroyed, we destroyed their industry we we bombed their their factories we destroyed their industry and and uh you know uh, when we rebuilt them after the war with the Marshall Plan, we rebuilt Germany and Japan, both of them. We with all of their their steel mills and, and they were were all built with the with the, with the latest uh, the the latest designs of furnaces and 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 and, uh, and uh, mills and, and and machinery was all was all new and, and better. And yet, our ours the machinery we had beat them with in World War Two. Was old because it was it dated way back to the to the 1920s. We were still using using Bessemer furnaces that were used in World War One, and so uh, it's no wonder that uh, that uh, that once globalism got got really going, it's no wonder that 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 our our steel industry fell behind and all, even with the union situation. Uh, and this is something that, that, that Rand doesn't want to deal with. I mean, she's, this is, you know, these are, these are factors that she doesn't take into consideration. Now, um, however, as I said, we still, we, we still need to get our industry upgraded and get it back and get it going and figure out how, how, uh, you know, how to, how to, uh, uh, you know, to employ people uh, and yet and the union's uh, uh, accommodated, and, and we need to do all this. Uh, now, in the fourth book of the Hermetic Corpus, the Crater, we read that God bestowed the speech on all men, but not the mind. Now, we are told that there is no envy involved in this, but that those who possess the mind are the ones who have a special relationship with God. Now, in the terms of the present discussion, they have a special relationship with the universe because um, Ayn Rand was an atheist, and, and, uh, and Crowley, who we were referring to, was pretty close to being the same thing, except that he misinterpreted the Hermetic uh, proposition and, and, and thought that there is no God but man, and that's not a very good way to, to, to explain Hermet, the Hermetic proposition. The Hermetic proposition is that God lives in all men, and, and that's the only place you're going to find God is inside yourself. But the idea that there is no God but man is not a, is not not very wise from a Hermetic perspective. However, uh, that, that was Crowley's perspective, and, and also, uh, and as I say, Ayn Rand was an atheist. And Ayn Rand uh, also made the observation that, that uh, the Russians transferred their mysticism that they that they had for the, the Russian church to communism and, and applied that mysticism to communism and she's probably right about that.
1: And uh,
0: and she, just like Marx, believed that, that religion was the opium of the people. Uh, so even though she's an anti Marxist, she's there are certain things about Marxism that, that uh, you know that she she would agree with. And she's also a romantic, and there are certain things about romanticism that, uh, especially her her literary hero uh, Victor Hugo, there are certain things that that uh, that he believed that she would not did not believe in. Uh, now, hermetics hermetics have the gnosis; they are the knowers, they are the doers, they are self realized individuals. Now this. Is certainly elitism, but it's not predestined. Um, this is not not really getting in the way of, of of the political proposition that all men are created equal. And by the way, that is a political proposition because all men are not created equal. But it and it's been political ever since ever since ancient Greece. Uh, our bowl of knowledge, Gnosis, has been sent down for those willing to baptize themselves in it, according to uh, the Hermetic treatise, and they may then discover their personal measure of divinity and their life's purpose. Now, what Alistair Crowley called their true will. Hermetic philosophy is profoundly individualistic. The Hermetist is at the center of his own universe. He owns his own world. Now, in Crowley's 1922 novel, Diary of a Drug Fiend, he fictionalizes his Abbey of Thulema, that was on an island out of Sicily, uh, the island of Thulema experience, using magic to rehabilitate talented and creative dropout drug addicts of the lost generation on an island retreat in the Mediterranean. Now, his characters have an eerie resemblance to those in Atlas Shrugged, one of them is an engineer who dreams of designing the first helicopter. Now, Crowley's philemic philosophy is very similar to Ayn Rand's objectivism. Although Rand might not have agreed with the supernatural premise of Crowley's Book of the Law, she would probably have concurred with Crowley's Manifesto Liberas. But what do Ayn Rand and Aleister Crowley really share in common? What great writer influenced them both? The answer will come as a surprise to most of us, even Philomites, Victor Hugo, whose last novel was titled Ninety-Three. Hear that, 93, 93, 93, Being short for 1793, the year of the French Revolution, it is a story of people fighting and dying for their personal values. Victor Hugo, Rand, and Crowley were all romantics. Romantics fight the good fight and and serve what they deem the just cause. But even though they may identify with a religion, a cult, a nation, or a philosophy, their heroism is essentially personal and individual, and a personal and individual statement. We might say that a Romantic hero does not die for his country or his God. He dies for his own honor and glory under the flag and the symbol of God and country. Ironically, we have had Romantics among Bolsheviks and Nazis, even though both these credos suppress personal freedom and dignity. At the zenith, Romantics are heroes. At the nadir, they are fanatics. Hermetic baptism refocuses the individual on him or herself, which might be called the truest and purest expression of Romanticism. This is also a shared point between Rand and Crowley and our own interpretation of Hermetic philosophy. We even call it Romantic solipsism. In mundane reality, this Hermetic baptism or realization may occur at any time in one's life, in any number of ways or circumstances. No religion or philosophy has a monopoly on the process. The only prerequisites, station of the transformation are courage and determination. For many people, finding and following their true will will be the greatest challenge of their lives. Like masonry and the Fountainhead's heroic architects, Hiram Abiff, and Howard Roark, they must be willing to fight and even die for their vision and their freedom. Atlas Shrugged is a very effective exposition of this all-important human quality. Allow me to deliver another presentation of the same argument in the form of an anonymous poem called The Little Red God, written by an American in the 19th century. Here's a little red song to the god of guts who lives in palaces, brothels, and huts. The little red god with a craw of grit, the god who never learned how to quit. He's neither a fool with a frozen smile or a sad old toad in a cask of bile. He can dance with a shoenail in his heel and never a sign of his pain reveal. He can hold a mob with an empty gun and turn a tragedy into fun, kill a man in a flash of breath. Or snatch a friend from the claws of death Swallow the pill of assured defeat And plan attack in his slow retreat Spin the wheel till the numbers dance And bite his thumb at the god of chance Drink straight water with whiskey soaks Or call for liquor with temperance folks Fearless stand by the graven stone Yet weep in the silence of night alone Worship a sweet white virgin's glove Or teach a courtesan how to love Dare the dullness a fireside bliss, or or stake his soul for a one's kiss. Blind his soul to a woman's eyes when she says she loves and he knows she lies. Shovel dung in the city mart to earn a crush for his chosen art. Build where the builders all have failed and sail the seas no man has sailed. Run a tunnel or dam a stream or damn the men who finance the dream. Tell a pal what his work is worth, though he lose his last best friend on earth. Lend the critical monkey, monkey elf a razor, hoping he'll kill himself. Wear the garments he likes to wear, never dreaming that people stare. Go to church, as his conscience wills, or find his own in the far blue hills. He's kind and gentle or harsh and gruff. He's tender as love he's right tough a rough-necked rider in spurs and chaps or a well-groomed son on the town perhaps and this is the little red god I sing who cares not a wallop for anything that walks or gallops that crawls or struts no matter how clothed if it doesn't have guts now that is um, that's uh, one of my my favorite uh, poems by the way and uh and, uh we have uh you know considerable time uh time left and so um i want to discuss some of the points that we've uh, uh that we made uh that we made here to amplify them on and uh, amplify them a bit uh, uh one of the problems with laissez-faire capitalism as we said is is the uh, you know the uh uh the monopoly situation and this this is something that, that Ayn Rand doesn't doesn't deal with. Uh she thinks somehow or other that, that unregulated capitalism uh will will somehow solve these problems. But it, it, it isn't true and and, and 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 you know, I think when we look back at especially at Henry Ford when he establishes his assembly lines. Uh those assembly lines at the Ford Motor Company were were driving people to uh, 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 they were driving people literally insane and, and to suicide and what uh, it, it was it it, it it was hideously monotonous to, to be just performing one physical action over and over and over and over and over again without relief. Uh, what finally happened as a result of, of of that assembly line problem was that the uh the unions finally developed um to get the assembly line workers to become become specialists in the entire assembly of the car and that's the way it finally evolved as a result of, of uh you could never get Henry Ford to change it. He 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 wouldn't but finally the unions prevailed. And they made uh they made their members assembly specialists. So you uh you only had to had to uh put put the one bolt in the one, the one bolt in that 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 he may have had to spend a whole ten years just just sticking this one bolt in this one hole, the way Ford used to do it. But then finally the unions got it where you, you did that for maybe maybe a week, and then you and and then you got to got you got to do some do some wiring, and you got to, you know various other things that, until finally uh you, you evolved to the point where you were an assembly specialist, you could put together a whole automobile. And this was something that gave the worker pride, it gave him it it gave made him very skilled and, and very valuable. And uh, and then <laughs> and then of course uh they discovered that well, why should we why should we have these very, very these very expensive um uh, uh assembly people who don't want to stick one bolt in one hole when we can get a robot. And a robot will stick one bolt in one hole, and, he, and the robot won't, won't go crazy. He'll just keep doing it. So that, uh, of course, was uh, unfortunately uh, the idea of creating the assembly specialist, uh, you know, uh, didn't work. And a lot of things have happened um, that have caused us, as I said, to, uh, cause us to uh, to send our you know, our industries uh, elsewhere, um, to send our you know the, the heavy industry elsewhere, including the uh, the obsolete nature of of, uh, of our of our, of our steel industry and and all these various things uh, that have occurred, and of course robotics and computers. Uh have, uh... have contributed to it so we 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 have this is not a sim- simple problem you can't solve it by just by just saying oh well we gotta stop all these government regulations however uh... uh it is also true that uh... that environmentalism has also played a, a role in, in a lot of this and uh... Um, you know our coal industry yeah, has has really suffered, and uh, and that uh, it, 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 there are ways of cutting down these these coal emissions, and and uh, and of course as we as we have discovered ways of cutting down petroleum emissions, and uh, and that of course we think that that, that these emissions uh, these, these uh, you know the smog and the air pollution. We think it's. We think it was bad back in the in the 70s and the 80s. Nothing compared to how bad it was in London at the turn of the previous century. It was unbelievably bad. London, you know, they, they had they had tuberculosis epidemics that were caused literally by coal dust in the air. And and if you think the smog was bad, it was bad in the 70s. Uh, oh, it was terrible back in the, in the 1900s. So we've we've come a long way, and uh, uh, we come a long way in 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 managing to to uh, you know to to make our our industry and our our mining and our, our and our oil drilling a lot a lot safer. And and I'm not going to say that environmentalism is wrong or or that. Uh, uh you know, I'm not, I'm not going to personally challenge I think I think we need to do a lot to clean up the atmosphere and clean up the and, and you know clean up our rivers and we need, we 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 have to do this we we uh we have to purify our water and we have to purify our environment however uh at the expense of of uh of of industry. We should perhaps, you know, we should perhaps take a bigger, a, a broader look at that. Uh, but th- these are things, as I say, that, that Ayn Rand, she, when she, when she, uh, was writing, these were, these were not, these problems had not come to the fore, either the environment or the, uh, you know, the, the advances in technology and the, the labor market. None of these things, uh, came to the fore. So, um, uh, we have to understand that that that, uh, that it isn't going to work. It's just taking the Atlas shrugged idea and say, okay, get the government out, get 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 the government off our backs, and let let us do and build and do whatever we want. That that's not going to quite work. And and I and I certainly don't want to give the impression that I'm recommending it. But regardless of that, uh, it, it, we 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 have a deteriorating. We have a deteriorating industry, uh, industrial uh, base, and we have uh, and de- deteriorating manufacturing capabilities, and we have a very, very deteriorating infrastructure, and including our electrical grid is is in terrible shape. So we have a lot of of, uh, of work to do straightening this country out, and um, and uh, the. The way to do this, of course, is naturally to, to uh, have the government work hand in hand with industry and not try to work against it, and uh, and to, to try to, to, to try to uh, uh, cooperate and and uh, make socialism work. Let's also remember. And something else that that Ayn Rand does not not, uh, uh, deal with, at least I haven't found in any of her writings, she didn't deal with uh, the rise of socialism uh, in in the Fabian Society and the Roundhouse Group and and, uh, the rise of socialism over here in the Western world. as I think most of us are aware, uh, you know, George Bernard Shaw and H.G. Wells and, and Cecil Rhodes and all that, uh, all that, uh, the crowd over in England, the Cambridge and the Oxford crowd, they, they developed a, a form of socialism, uh, that, that was eventually adopted by, uh, people over here like Rockefeller and whatever. And, and, uh, you know, I, it, it really goes back in a way. It goes back to the French Revolution, the uh, the the, uh, the French Revolution, which Victor Hugo uh, wrote the novel about, called Ninety Three, because that's seventeen ninety-three, and 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 uh, the French Revolution was what really brought about uh, the Fabian Society, and it and, and and it brought about both both the Bolsheviks. Uh, in the east and and the the Fabians in the west, and the and the reason why it did was that that wealthy, powerful, wealthy people realized after the French Revolution, they realized that if they didn't take care of the working people, of the uh, of the workers and 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 and, and the and the, the proletariat, according to the communist uh, uh, jargon, if they didn't take care of these people. These, those people were going to take care of them, you know, off with their heads, and and so in order for the for the wealthy class, the ruling class to survive, they had to they had to make the proletariat and the bourgeoisie and all the rest of these these classes these classes that Marx refers, they had to make them happy, and uh the, the communist experiment and even though uh, even though we, we we found out that that uh uh the communist experiment was you know, over in russia even while we were supposedly fighting them we were also supporting them in the early days uh herbert hoover supported them rockefeller supported them a lot of a lot of people supported them uh and uh they uh but, but the but the, the the communist experiment failed and we all know that it failed in the 1990s and then again it collapsed and and our form of Fabian uh, you know the Fabian socialists our form uh succeeded but uh our form right now if we if we don't get get our economy straightened out and we don't get our 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 uh you know our survival capability uh, back in 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 the our our form of government uh, in, 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 uh, of benign socialism is also is going to degenerate down into into uh, God God help us not something like 1984 I hope it doesn't go that way but it could because uh, especially. Uh, you know with this all this terrorism going on and what have you we uh we've lost so many of our freedoms, but we hope that doesn't happen uh and and uh um, and yet uh, at the same time we we uh we must realize that what 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 we have now is is a is a form of socialism that is really um, administered and, and, and run by by international uh, bankers and, and and industrialists and and uh, uh, if you really want to know if you really really want to know what it's all about uh, Pat Ichevsky, uh the screenwriter uh, defined it in a speech uh, in the screenplay of network in 1976 and and you can go on YouTube, and and just go on YouTube and put down Ned Beattie's speech network and watch it. And uh, and Ned Beatty, uh, the corporate uh, magnet, uh, giving the Mad Profit uh, Howard Beale uh, the truth about things. And that's how. The world today really runs and and quite frankly it's it's (laughs) i don't want i don't want to put a i don't want to put a nasty name on it but but let's let's say that it is a form it is it's socialistic but then so are the nazis uh you know nazism uh means national socialist workers party and and uh and anyway, you will um, you if you go and and watch watch Ned Beattie's speech. And I in almost in a way, you know, you could almost put Ayn Rand at the end of the table where Beale, where the mad Prophet Beal is is um, is is sitting, and Ned Beattie's at the other end of the boardroom table, and uh instead of uh pointing his finger at, at Beale could be pointing his finger at Ayn Rand and starting off by saying, "By saying, you have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Miss Rand, and I will not have it." And you could, and and that uh, that would be a an almost a uh, and you could almost edit that and, and and do it successfully. However, all all told and all concerned. Atlas Shrugged is a very, very, very powerful uh, book with a message for today. The characters are dynamic, and if you are an achiever, and if you are, if you, if you, uh, you are a believer in, in your own individual uh, uh, destiny, and, and you are a person who, uh, who. Uh, believes in 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 following your true will you and you read Atlas word you're going to identify with these characters you will you can't help it and uh as like you said it's the book's been read by almost as many people as read the Bible so uh I strongly recommend you read the book and and the movie the, and and the movie version is is, is 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 pretty good the the movie version is good follows the book mercifully it it shortens up some of uh, Ayn Rand's uh, preaching because she can get very preachy, and uh, uh, and so uh, that's Atlas. Uh, that's Atlas Shrugged, and and uh, and, uh, and I think we've just about uh, we've just about said about as much about that as we as we need to, and so. Um, uh, next week, we'll be back with, uh, with another uh, hopefully interesting subject, and, uh, and, I, and I guarantee it will be interesting, you know, uh, as, as interesting as we can make it. And so, good night and good magic. 18 plus.